0: Hey, let's pray together and we're going to get into God's word. God, thank you for uh, this book that we have in front of us. Thank you for the way that you breathed out your life and your love and your story of redemption onto the pages that we have in front of us. God, we're covering just three verses today, just, just three verses in this book. And, and we, my hope, God, is that we will be amazed and floored at the life And goodness and grace that's dripping from just three verses in this book called the Bible. We love you. We invite you to speak uh, to us now. God, even before we go forward, I do just want to thank you for Mike and Ashley and for Cody and for Tessa. Thanks for their time here. God, I pray that you would continue to direct their paths, make clear paths for them as they move forward. God, I'm grateful for Mike and for his time here on staff and for his love for students and even his uh, love for and and support for me. God, speak to us now in and through your word. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a me culture. We live in a me culture culture and i saturated self focused self indulgent narcissistic me culture if you want some examples let me cite a few for you The American Freshman Survey is a survey of uh, freshmen in colleges and universities all across North America, not just U.S. It says American, but it's all across the U.S. And it's been uh, conducted over the last 50, 60 years talking to incoming college freshmen. And the most recent surveys have noted a dramatic rise in the number of students who describe themselves as being above average. An academic ability, drive to achieve, mathematical ability, and self-confidence. And back in the 50s and 60s, people just kind of rate themselves on an average scale. And now, over the last 20 years, these students have rated themselves on a very, very high scale. And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that's great. It's good self-esteem. Except for the fact that researchers also discovered a disparity between the students' opinions of themselves and their actual ability. If you understand what I'm saying. They call it, these recent, this American Freshman Survey, they call it ambition inflation. They actually called it an epidemic of narcissism in our world today. We're so narcissistic and self-indulgent that we've created entire websites dedicated to ourselves. They're called Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Before November of 2013, people actually did take pictures of themselves, but we invented a new word for it called Selfie. In November of 2013 and so now you don't even have to ask someone to take a picture of you there's a thing called a selfie stick have you heard of the selfie stick you attach your phone to the end of an inanimate object and you can hold it out in front of you like this and take a picture of yourself like that's so insulting to me am I not good enough to take a picture of you Like, this inanimate object is going to do a better job. No, thank you. I don't need you, Luke, to take a picture of me. This inanimate object will do a better job taking a picture of me than you will. We affirm this narcissistic culture when we put narcissistic celebrities, self-indulgent celebrities on the cover of magazines, and and affirm that culture and you know what it doesn't stop there by the way it turns right back on us that uh, self-indulgent self-focused culture turns right back on us when we look at the cover of those magazines and we do one of two things to make ourselves feel better watch this now we say wow I'm not nearly as immoral as that person don't I feel good or, or we say this, you know what, their morality, that's, that's okay, that's good for them, it's cool for them, that's okay, in order to make ourselves feel better about our own immorality, right? If, 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 in case, you know, you, you think that like this kind of came out of nowhere, I want you to know that as, as Lady Gaga would say, we were, we were born this way. My, my daughter is nine months old, and this is her favorite book, it's called Peekaboo. I want to read it to you. Peekaboo. Pika moo and there's a cow. Isn't that great? Pika boo and there's a ghost. And my daughter every time we read this, we read it just before service today, she waits with bated breath because she knows what's coming. Pika, if I turn the page a little bit, she'll grab it and turn it zoo. Pika Choo-choo, right? And she knows. And she starts going like this. Because she knows what's coming, right? Pika you. And it's got a mirror. Isn't that cute? Isn't that neat? And it shows Pika you. And you know what she does every time? She grabs it and she kisses herself. I'm not kidding. i got to kiss myself I'm so pretty, as as, as, uh, as I've heard it said before. Look. (laughs) Look, she's a a cute little girl, but she's narcissistic as she can be. (laughs) The whole world revolves around her, and at least that's her opinion. A couple hundred years ago, during the Age of Enlightenment, a guy named Adam Smith wrote a book, uh, wrote wrote a piece called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. You may have heard of Adam Smith before. He wrote The Wealth of Nations, considered the founder of modern day kind of economics, especially. Um, capitalism adam smith in the theory of moral sentiments argued for the idea of an invisible hand the invisible hand was this internal voice this internal something that determined your morality that determined what things were good or what things are bad so if you listen to the invisible hand that's inside of you and you follow the direction that the invisible hand was guiding you then that would be good for society do you see the shift there All of a sudden, morality wasn't uh, coming from God or coming from the Bible, or it wasn't even coming from the community around you. Morality came from inside of you. Do you see the shift to self-indulgence and to self-reliance and to narcissism? From the way that we feel about ourselves to how we understand morality to entitlement to infatuation with facial moisturizer and hair products, we live in a me Culture. So I want to tell you two things before we read the text this morning. Number one, today's message is going to run counter to the me culture that we live in. It's going to run counter to the me culture that we see in society. And can I just clue you in on something? This me culture, this self focused, narcissistic, self infatuated culture, has crept into the church in language like, I invite Jesus into my heart or I ask Jesus into my heart, or invite Jesus into my life, it's all about me, it's all about my invitation, it's all about my asking him into my heart. Check this, that language never shows up in the scripture. That's not the invitation of the gospel, but because we have a me-focused culture and it's crept its way into the church, it shows up. Today's message is gonna run counter to that. Number two, I personally, as your pastor, am not immune to self-importance and narcissism to self-indulgence and to self-focus. I've said it before and I'll say it again. No one is a bigger fan of me than me. I like me a lot, just as Kaya does. I gotta kiss myself, I'm so pretty. So, I was thrilled, I was thrilled to learn that after talking about Jesus and Jesus alone in verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter one, Paul starts to talk about me. Oh, it felt so good. He starts to talk about me. As a friend of mine would say, enough of me talking about me, now you talk about me. And so it came as a relief when in Colossians 1, verse 21, Paul starts to talk about me. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians 1, verse 21. If you don't have your Bibles, as always, there's one in the seat back in front of you. There's one up here on the screen, the scriptures up here on the screen. Colossians 1 is about 80% of the way through your Bible, and we're going to start there in verse 21. Here's what Paul writes. He says, and you, doesn't that feel good? <laughs> it feels good, doesn't it? He continues, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Well, that's not exactly what we think about ourselves, is it? That's not about how we imagine ourselves. This whole morality is up to me and I've got an inflated view of myself and this epidemic of narcissism. You see how that's already contradicting, already what Paul is saying is contradicting what we think of ourselves. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We're going to unpack four Greek terms there. You don't have to write down the Greek word, but I am going to tell it to you just so you know I'm not blowing smoke. The first one is alienated, and the Greek word is apolo. It's, it means strangers. It means cut off. It means separated and excluded. You were once strangers, cut off, separated, and excluded. The second word there is hostile. It's ekthros. It means enemies or hateful. Not only does it mean enemies are hateful, but there's an implication there in Ekthros that that it's a that it's a proactive choice to become an enemy or to become hateful. It was a choice to become hateful towards God. Paul says not only that, we are alienated, strangers are cut off, we are hostile, enemies are hateful, and we are that way in our mind. That word is diannoia, and it means mind, disposition, or will. So check this out, because this is critical, and we'll get to it in a minute. But Paul says that we are alienated and hostile, not just in the way we behave, but in our very disposition, in our mind, in our will, in the core of who we are. We are alienated and hostile, and that causes us to do evil deeds. Poneros is the Greek word there. And I want you to know, this is, this is, check this out. This is amazing. Circle that word deeds in your Bible. If you're, if you're a note taker in your Bible, circle that word deeds. The reason I want you to circle it is because it does not show up in the original language. That word poneros doesn't mean evil deeds, it just means evil, and there's no deeds on the end of it. Translators have added deeds because there's an implication that we do evil deeds or do wicked stuff, and so I'm okay with it because it's implied there, but I want you to know that Paul's saying that we are alienated and hostile in our very disposition and our will, and that we do evil, Period. That's just what we do because it's who we are. Let me say it this way. Our alienation from God and our hostility or our enmity towards God is not merely hostility in deed and action, but in mind and heart and disposition as well. And that alienation and hostility of mind and disposition leads to evil actions and behavior. So, whereas society might say, kiss yourself, you so pretty, God says, I am alienated from him, hostile toward him, and evil relative to him. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is where the Bible starts the message of the gospel with God saying, you are alienated from him, hostile toward him, and evil relative to him. Now, leave that up here on the screen because we're going to talk about this for a minute. But I don't want anybody to panic because we're going to get to God's amazing grace here in a minute. Okay? We're going to get to the change that he's effected. We're going to get to what he's done in our life because check this out. Paul says, you were what? Once. That means not anymore. But, but we've got to camp out here for a minute because we have to understand what Paul is saying here. Culture might tell me that I'm awesome and I'm worth it. People might tell me how great I am. My heart may even tell me that I'm a pretty good person. But God says I'm alienated, hostile, and evil. He says it's not just that I sin, but that I'm a sinner. He says it's not just about your behavior, it's about your heart. Take a look at how Paul describes this condition of the heart in Romans chapter 1. Don't turn there yet. It's up here on the screen. Read along with me. Don't read out loud because that's always weird. Okay, so verse 21. For although they, that's us now, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. It doesn't get better from here. We're going to keep reading, but it doesn't get better. To do what ought not be done. Skip down to 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. You see it? Enmity. Hostility, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, which I always think is great that he just throws in among all that stuff. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He's talking about us. In short, God says that I am alienated from him, Hostile toward him and evil relative to him, and that's who I am. Now, that might seem odd or uncomfortable, especially countercultural, but if it does, it's likely because your definition of God is a little bit off of what the Bible says about who God is. Because if you picture God as kind of a goodly old benevolent grandfather in the sky, or if you, if you picture God as kind of a good buddy, or if you picture him as a cosmic force, it does not make any sense that we would be alienated, hostile, and evil relative to him. That doesn't make any sense if that's how we picture God. But if we agree, if we affirm Paul's definition of God, and especially Paul's definition of Christ in verses 15 through 20, if we accept, check it, biblical theology, if God is who he he says he is then who we are relative to him makes absolute perfect crystal clear sense in other words let's say it this way if christ is the burning sun at the center of your universe then that planet of self-awareness falls into its correct place let's say it a few different ways here just so we get it if we rightly understand god then we will rightly understand ourselves. If our theology is on point, then our anthropology is on point. It makes sense that the Christ of glory from verses 15 through 20, which we covered the last couple of weeks, would have expectations of me that I cannot live up to. It would make sense that I'm separated from the God who lives in unapproachable light. That makes total sense to me. It makes sense that I would be an enemy to the holy and righteous and glorious God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It makes sense that my mind has run so far down the rabbit hole of self-indulgence that I can't even see the light of day from where I'm at. Here's what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. We're sinners, plain and simple. Not just people who sin. Sinners to our very core. Before Christ does his saving work, each of us is alienated from, hostile toward, and evil relative to God. Okay, enough of that. Enough. Enough of it. Let's read the good news. Verse 22. Look down at it. Look down at it. He has now reconciled. Check that out. In his body, talking about Christ, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I'm going to read that one more time. While we were once alienated and hostile and enemies of God, evil in his sight, he, Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, that's you, that's everybody, that's you, 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 and me, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, just as we define those other terms in Greek, let's define these terms in Greek. First, Christ has reconciled us. That word reconciled means to cause people or groups to become friendly again after an argument or disagreement. So here's what Paul is saying. He's reconciled you so that separation, that alienation is gone. He's reconciled you so that hostility, that enmity, that strife is now gone. He has reconciled you to God the Father. I love the fact that Paul here uses the passive form of the verb, and he does it on purpose. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that you didn't do anything, but God did it all. Second word. Paul also says that we're holy. That we're holy. He says we're set apart for a particular purpose. So so now look at this. Rather than being enemies of God and fighting against him, we're now joined with God shoulder to shoulder with him and moving his purposes forward. Not only did he bring us to a place of neutral rather than hostility towards him, not just a place of neutral, but a place of positive work and positive effort and kingdom work. He says, now join with me. You are holy and set apart for my purpose. Number three, Paul says that we're blameless. This would have been the same word used for the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament. It means perfect, spotless, no blemishes. Number four, he says that we're above reproach. Here's what that means. It means that even accusations against us don't stick. We are above accusations. We are above reproach. Those things, if they're hurled at us, they don't stick. We're like Teflon to accusations. You hear those stories all the time about the innocent man who was wrongly convicted, and he was in jail for 30 years, and then they finally let him out and all that stuff. I want you to know that spiritually speaking now, before a holy God, that won't ever, ever happen to those who know Christ. We are above accusations. So God, became flesh in his son Jesus. He lived and he died and sacrificed that body of flesh so that we would be called what? Reconciled, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Bottom line truth number two this morning, and and we're gonna have this up here on the screen for just a minute so that you can write it down. Here's what Paul is saying. You were once at odds with God. You were once alienated from him. You were once an enemy of his. You were once doing evil, but now in Christ, God has declared that I am his friend. Just let that sink in for a minute. Reconciled me, declared that I am his friend, Set apart for his purposes, perfect in his sight, and free from accusation. Put it up on the screen if you would. God has declared that I am his friend, set apart for his purposes, perfect in his sight, and free from accusation. Again, we're going to leave it up there just for a moment so that you can jot it down because this is absolutely critical for us to understand now our position and standing before a holy God because of the sacrifice of Christ. In Christ, God has has declared that I am his friend, that I can talk to him, that I can enter into the holy place with confidence, that I can go to him with prayer, that I can make requests of him, that I can talk to him, that I don't need an intermediary, somebody to go on my behalf. God and I can just talk because I've been reconciled, that I'm set apart for his purposes. I, I, um, I, had, some, I had some steaks a couple nights ago, and I, and I put them aside in the refrigerator, right? I put them aside because I, it, was for, it was for just a night for me and Amy to do date night with steaks in the refrigerator, Right? And those steaks, listen, this is really a this is a biblical illustration. This helps us understand that word holy. Those steaks were holy. If you tasted them, you would agree with me, number one, because I cooked them. Number two, they were set apart for a particular purpose. They were set aside useful for a particular purpose. That's what Paul is saying when we're holy. We're set apart for his purposes. Number three, we're perfect in his sight. So now when God looks at us, he doesn't see enmity. He doesn't see hostility. He doesn't see separation. He doesn't see evil deeds. You know what he sees? Jesus. That's what he sees. Because the righteousness of Christ that we could never attain for ourselves has been, $2 theological word now, imputed unto us, given unto us, placed upon us. So the lens, the filter that God looks through is Jesus and he sees us as perfect in his sight. And number four, we're free from accusation. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That gives us a lot of freedom, doesn't it? It gives a lot of Hope that any accusation that's hurled our way isn't going to stick. Here's where I want to camp out this morning, as, as, as if we haven't already. There's something in this passage that's very, very critical for us to understand when it comes to a right understanding of God, and it's the theology here of why God did all this. Like, I mean, ask yourself, right, if, if I was once an enemy of God's, if I was once hostile towards him, if I was once alienated, cut off, and separated, and all I did was evil because of the very disposition of my mind and heart, why in the world would God save me? Why would he rectify that situation? Why would he reconcile me? Why would he call me holy and blameless? Did I impress him some way? Did he look down and go, man... I'm glad you're focused on you because you're awesome. So let me do some stuff for you. No, 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 no. That's not what God said. Look at verse 22. Here's why God did all that in order to present you before Him, in order to present you holy. And blameless and above reproach before him. He reconciled you and me in the body of flesh that Christ gave on the cross, called us holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you see it? For this reason to present you before him. In other words, God did not save us because we're awesome or because we impressed him. God declared us reconciled, blameless, holy, and above reproach. So listen to this. So he could give himself a gift. So he could give to himself a people, a church, a holy nation of worshipers that would reflect his glory. Here's what Paul is saying, and he's been building this case now since verse 15. Remember, he introduced himself at the beginning. He prayed for the Colossian church. And then in verse 15, he gets into this theology, and this is what we've been unpacking over the last couple of weeks. Remember, the universe is created in and for and by and through Christ. And all things point to him. The church, and he's preeminent in the church, and our goal is to point to him. And even now, and this is tough for some of us, even your salvation is given to you so that you might point to Christ. Your salvation is for Christ and for his glory. Christ is the focus. Christ is the end goal. Christ is the purpose of our salvation. We were saved in order to be presented to Christ. He just said it there. At its very core, here's why God did what he did. God saved us to show his glory. God saved us to show his glory. Glory. For some of you, you might go, Gosh, that sounds weird, or that's unfamiliar to me. Or, Luke, does the Bible say that in other places? I just want to jump through and don't try to write these down because we're going to zip through them really, really fast. All the things that God, was that Peekahoo? That was Peekahoo I just dropped. I hope it's not broken. I'm have a mad kid. All right. I want to talk you through the biblical references that tell us all of the things that God has done for his glory. And you know what? This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. God created us for his glory, Isaiah 43. God called Israel for his glory, Isaiah 49, Jeremiah 13. God chose us, the church, for his glory, Ephesians 1. God raised up Pharaoh for his glory, Romans 9. God defeated Egypt for his glory, Exodus 14. God spared Israel and the wilderness for his glory, Ezekiel 20. God gave Israel the promised land for his glory, 2 Samuel 7. God saved Jerusalem for his glory, 2 Kings 19. God restored Israel from exile for his glory, Ezekiel 36. We're to do good works for God's glory, Matthew 5, 1 Peter 2. God answers prayer, what? For his glory, John 14. Faith is impossible if we're not seeking God's glory, John 5. God gave his son to vindicate his glory, Romans 5. God sent his Holy Spirit to give him glory, John 16. Jesus is coming again for God's glory, 2 Thessalonians 1. The earth will be... Filled with the glory of God, Habakkuk 2. All things are for God's glory, Colossians 1. We just reviewed that one. And eventually, God's glory will replace the Son, Revelation 21. All of these things are for God's glory. And according to Colossians 1, verse 22, so is our salvation now. He reconciled us and called us holy and blameless and above reproach for his praise and for his glory and for his attention and for his fame. Now watch this. If God saved you to show his glory, so what? Well, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. If God does everything for his glory and for his fame and for his and he even saved you and me for his glory then it's not about you it can't be about you so 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 what are you saying luke so are you saying like i'm just like an object that that like like a potter takes clay and forms it into exactly what he wants just to reflect his glory yeah that's what i'm saying What are you saying, Luke? Should I just walk around and, you know, like whatever I do, like whether I eat or I drink, I should just do it all for the glory of God? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying because that's what the Bible says. I don't care if it's your role in the body of Christ. I don't care if it's the way you interact with others, your marriage, your job, your finances, your time, even your salvation itself, anything. The only reason it's there is to give God glory and attention, and it's not about you. Let's talk about that for a minute, just real quick. Some of us experience disconnect. Some of us experience unhappiness. This isn't always the case, but it's sometimes the case. Some of us experience joylessness in a bunch of areas excuse me, of our life, different areas of our life and aspects of our life because we're self-focused, because we've bought into what the culture says about me, or, or we've bought into what our heart says about us, that, gosh, I'm important. I'm going to read Peekahoo, get my picture at the end, because there's a mirror there right? We've bought into that, and then we live that out in our life. We live out that broken theology, better yet, that broken anthropology, understanding of man, who we are and who others are. We live it out, and it breaks stuff in our life all the time. For example, some of us are unhappy in our walk with Christ because we've made it about ourselves. Well, this isn't fun anymore, It was for God's glory to begin with. It wasn't for our fun. Some of us are unhappy in our marriage because we've made it about us. Some of us are having a joyless church experience because we've made it about us. Some of us don't give or don't serve because we've made it about us. Better yet, some of us withhold service and withhold giving because it's all about us. Some of us wear a frown 24-7 because we're self-focused. Some of us are unhappy at work because we're self-focused. Some of us have a difficult time finding friends because we're self-focused. That's not always the case, but it's the case sometimes. Not all the time, please hear me, but sometimes. And that self-focus, that narcissism, or even as Gene Twenge from San Diego State University that does a college freshman survey every year, says this is an epidemic of narcissism in our world, and it's bad, it's just destructive and it doesn't do anything good that narcissism and self-focus breaks stuff in our life all the time none of those attitudes reflect a biblical model each of them is destructive it's all about Jesus it's always been about Jesus even your salvation is about Jesus it's about the glory of God and it's not about you now I don't know about you but I like that I'll be honest with you, I like that. Because when I think about it, I would rather my salvation not be about me. You know why? Because I'll break that too. We'll talk about that in a minute, more specifically, because Paul gets to that in verse 23. But if my salvation is about me, then I'll break that too. You know what else? You know what? (laughs) I was thinking about this this week. If everything is for the glory of God, then it frees me up to be extraordinary. It really does. I hope that it frees you up to be extraordinary too. I hope that you're not sitting in your seat going, that's not about me. I don't know why. I'm not coming back here next week. You know what? I hope that you do. You know why? Because if it's not about you, you can be extraordinary. Think of the people in your life that you would call extraordinary. Not not talented, not rich, extraordinary. And some of you are thinking like, you know, Floyd Mayweather, he's extraordinary. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Taylor Swift, not extraordinary. Talented, okay, but not extraordinary. I don't want to step in a ring with Floyd Mayweather, but not extraordinary. I don't want to step in a ring with Taylor Swift for that matter, but that's beside the point. The type of people in your life that live extraordinary lives, those who you know and those who you observe from afar, you know what it's about, not them. The Nelson Mandelas of the world and the Martin Luther Kings of the world and the Mother Teresas of the world that live extraordinary lives are freed up to do so because they're focused on something that's greater and bigger and higher and different than them. It's not about them. And I hope it frees you up to live an extraordinary life too. One more thing that I would be remiss if we didn't cover is verse 23. It's one more critical clause In Colossians 1, in those three verses, 21 through 23, we'll pick it up from 22. Paul says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, that's the purpose, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. How many of you caught that word, if? Everybody, raise your hand. You see it? If. If you continue in the faith. Some people read that and go, "Well, wait, wait, does that mean, like, can I lose my salvation? Like, he he presented me holy and blameless before him, but only if? I continue in the faith? Is that what I have to do to be steadfast and to, and to be obedient my whole life and to live it out to the very end and not mess up? In other words, people ask this question. Have you heard it asked before? Can I lose my salvation? Have you heard people ask that before? Or can, can one lose one's salvation? Or can you lose your salvation? I don't know. I think he's maybe lost his salvation. He's backslidden. He's backslidden a bit, and I think he's lost his salvation. First of all, let me just clue you in on something. The Bible never uses that phrase or that term or that language, lose your salvation. Never. You know why? Because salvation is not a set of keys or like a cell phone or a wallet. It's like, I think did I? I've lost my salvation. I don't know where I've put it. Like, we would do well to stop using that language, lose your salvation, just simply because the Bible doesn't use it. Let's just throw that out there, huh? But for those who wonder, the short answer is this, no. No, you can't lose your salvation, even though I just told you to stop saying that. Two factors here support that conclusion. The first is grammatical, and the other is theological. First, That word if, in the original language, is pronounced A and transliterated as E-I, but again, you don't need to know it. It's called a first class condition in the original language, and it implies a logical connection between what came before it and what's going to happen after it. Logical connection. A plus B equals C. Here's what Paul's saying with that first class condition A, or translated If he's saying God purchased you, reconciled you, called you holy and blameless and above reproach, so we assume that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. It's inevitably going to happen because he did it for his glory and not for yours. That's what that word means. Second, if my salvation is as the universe is. Imagined by God, created by God, continued in God, and finds its ultimate purpose in bringing glory to God, then you can bet your last peso that it ain't going away, right? God's too passionate about his glory to let it slip or to let it slide. Now, look, there's a warning here. There's not a threat, not a threat. It's just a warning. It's like, hey, Here's what happens. When you've been called by God, reconciled to him, and and called holy and blameless and above reproach, that inevitably will work its way out in your life. Just as, just as before, your hostility towards him, your separation from him in mind and disposition caused you to do evil deeds, now the position you have in Christ reconciled with him, holy, blameless, shoulder to shoulder, friend of God, that will work itself out in your life by being stable and steadfast. Just wanted to let you know that, but we assume that's going to happen because it's all for the glory of Christ. I'm going to say it this way. Just for those of you who sometimes wonder, because I know there are some of you... Gosh, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Have I, you know, Did I do something to lose my salvation? Or I know somebody who did something and they, you know, they made a choice and they were Christian before and did they lose their salvation? Let's say it this way. If, and it is now, my salvation, let's even say it this way, since my salvation is given to me for the glory of Christ then my salvation is secure in Christ. My salvation is secure in Christ. It's not going away why because it's not about you didn't i tell you a minute ago if my salvation was about me i'd break it guess what there's a smile on my face today because it's not about me It's about Christ and his glory. And he's passionate about his glory. So he is going to continue and finish, according to Philippians 1 now, the good work he started in me. And I can trust him and simply live a life reconciled, holy, blameless and above reproach, and let that work itself out in the way that I live my life. You might be thinking to yourself, all right. All right, Luke, I buy it. God created me. He pursued me. He called me. He saved me. He reconciled me. He made me wholly blameless and above reproach just as Colossians 1 says and he will certainly finish what he started. My salvation isn't going away in order to present me and present the church holy, blameless and spotless before himself without blemish like a bride coming down the aisle in a pure white dress presented to the groom. This is why Christ purchased the church for himself. It's for his glory. It's not about me. I get it. Now what? Well, that's why Colossians doesn't stop there. So I hope that you'll continue to join us on Sundays because <laughs> we're going to talk about now what? Now that we understand who Jesus is, his role in creation, his role in the church, and what he has given to us for his glory, we're going to talk about next week, the, where we get our series title from, Christ in me. Check it. The hope of glory. Pray with me. God, as we prepare our hearts now to come before your table, even as the worship team kind of comes back up to lead us as we conclude today, I, I ask, oh God, that you would draw our hearts near to you Turn our eyes and our countenance up towards you. Remind us, O God, that spiritually speaking, in the heavenlies, we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. That we're your friends, that we're set apart for your purposes, that we are without blemish and free from any accusation. And so, God, now, as we come before you, we confess known sin... And we just enjoy your forgiveness and our standing in Christ as we prepare our hearts for communion. We just want to own and claim and live in and plant our roots deeply in, Jesus, what you have done by sacrificing your body of flesh for your glory. And that we are beneficiaries of your saving work on the cross. God, keep us focused on you today on your goodness and grace, as your word would say, to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name, amen.